This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. 12.03 on Tuesday afternoon, May 23rd. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Today is Travel Tuesday. We'll talk about planning a trip to wine country in our next segment. And right now, a new development on Chicago's northwest side will add TV and movie production space to the city's entertainment-based portfolio. Let's get the details from Albie Galoon, who's a senior reporter at Crane Chicago Business. Albie, thank you for joining us today. This used to be a Marshall Field warehouse. It was in the 4,000 block of West Diversity, and of course uh, Marshall Fields uh, entered the realm of uh, department store Fallen Flags nearly 20 years ago, and portions of the building have been repurposed, but now it's going to become another studio space in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. This is a pretty big deal. It's uh, the, the studio development is a $250 million project, and, um, you know, which is big from a real estate standpoint, but it's it's even bigger actually from uh, an economic standpoint because the film production industry is uh, presents the big growth opportunity for the city of Chicago. Uh, right now, we don't have enough film production space to support the demand, and so uh, this will help. Uh, you know, meet the demand that's out there. You know, people are binge watching shows on Netflix and Amazon Prime. And so that's really driving the demand for film production space. And, you know, it's a it's a growing industry. It supports about 15,000 people in the state of Illinois, and I would expect those numbers to uh, to grow going forward. The Cinespace facility on the west side, of course, uh, home to, th- I would imagine, some of the uh, Dick Wolf Chicago series. But you're saying uh, that's maxed out, which is uh, amazing in and of itself. Yeah, it really is. It's um, That's obviously a large facility. Um, there's actually another project that is in the works on the south side and south shore it's called regal mile studios and um derek dudley who is a producer of the shy series is spearheading that project so you know that's another area uh, i mean that's another location where we could see uh, another another studio campus is there any concern i mean the, the, this, what, among the issues uh, being discussed uh, during the ongoing uh, writers strike is the the changing economics of the business and there may not be nearly as many streaming tv series put into production in future years compared to the last 10 is there any concern that some of these studios may just become white elephants you know, it's a valid question because uh, obviously there has been a real kind of frenzy of production over the last, I don't know, five, five, ten years. And so you do have to ask whether whether that will continue. And so uh, it's really hard to look that far in the future. But obviously the developer of this project, which is um, Nick Point Ventures out of New York, and their um, – you know, their investors and lenders are 100% behind this project and believers that it's, you know, there's going to be demand going well into the future. Yeah, even in the end, if uh, the amount of uh, streaming TV was uh, shaved by, you know, reduced by a third, that's still a lot of TV that uh, needs some place uh, to produce their shows outside of Los Angeles, New York, and maybe Vancouver and Toronto. 
Yeah, and, you know, it, it's interesting because Chicago has, uh, you know, it's a popular place for uh, location shooting, you know, out, outdoors. And, you know, we see film trucks all over the city. Um, but, you know, it's not as much of a destination when it comes to the, the indoor um, filming in, you know, on sound stages. And so this is the kind of thing that will, you know, allow, uh, you know, just, it will just provide more space for that kind of activity. You can have your city street, you can have your distant planet, you can have a forest, uh, all under one roof on the northwest side. Albie Galoon, senior reporter, Crane Chicago Business. Thank you for joining us today. Because money matters. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Hey, it's Travel Tuesday, and a little bit of planning can go a long way in getting the most from a journey to California's wine country. Let's get some tips from Angie Rodgers. Rice, co-founder, Boutique Travel Advisors, based in Scottsdale, the website travelbta.com. Angie, thank you for joining us today. And I guess we can compare notes during this segment because uh, I just got back from wine country yesterday. It was a four-day weekend, my wife and I, and uh, making up for a lot of lost living, basically. Uh, We both turned 40 during the uh, COVID spring and summer of 2020, so we originally planned to go out there three years ago, and of course we couldn't go. So it was making up for that. It was making up for a lot of anniversary trips and other things. So we finally got all that out of the way and came back. And the one thing I learned from just the process of planning this, Angie, it can be pretty intimidating because there are just so many places to go and you're afraid of missing something. I totally agree. I think you can very much overlook just how many options you have to choose from. I mean, there's over 400 wineries, for example, in the northern region of California. And, and, and the reality is you can just pick uh, one or two and, and, and just have a great time. And, and there are so many ways you can plan. There are so many regions you can hit. There are so many towns uh, in which you can kind of draw a circle and go to a winery inside the radius. Um, when, when you set up these trips, you know, what are some of the guidelines uh, that you follow for your clients? it's important to know, are you truly going for the wine experience or are you going to really lay back and incorporate, like you said, one or two wineries into the trip? But if you're really a wine enthusiast, you really want to be mindful of which regions offer which type of wines because it does really vary. And for example, the Russian River is going to be focused more on Zinfandels. And if you're willing to explore the southern regions of California, you're looking at different um, types of wines as well. And I don't want people to overlook that Arizona, where I'm from, um, is also really getting some attention for its unique wineries. Yeah, the reality, I mean, you're either a wine person or you kind of smile and nod when they're explaining all of the various qualities of the uh, different different wines you're tasting uh, at different wineries. And I was definitely uh, in the latter group. It's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, tannins, okay, notes, I get it. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I want to drink it now. Um, so, but it, but it, it was as much of a food trip for me as it was uh, as much it was a wine experience. So, um, you know, trying, in, in trying to... Uh, find the best restaurants in any particular valley where it's Napa or Sonoma and and making that that could be equally as important as going to a winery. Agree. You really can't overlook the restaurant experiences. And you also have to keep in mind the price points of those restaurants. So if you overlook that, you could easily be spending hundreds of dollars at a restaurant unexpectedly. A good example is 
planning early. Right now, we're working on several small group itineraries, couples traveling together to wine country, and we're planning trips now for fall travel, just to give you an idea of how soon you want to start planning both your wine experience as well as getting those Michelin um, grade restaurants. And whether you're choosing a local small restaurant or something that's more upscale, it doesn't matter. Those restaurants book up. And on top of that, I mean, I saw a couple of cases of, of people bringing their families along. They did bring their young children. Obviously, they can't uh, take advantage of everything wine country has to offer. But some of these vineyards are built on large estates, and there's just a lot of room to run around and have a good time. And if you get a hotel with a pool, they can relax at the end of the day. So true. You don't want to overlook the fact that it can be a family-friendly experience. We do a lot of itineraries to Italy where families have some of their best days at a winery. There's no reason why families can't have the same experience in our own country, whether it's Northern California or other places that offer, you know, wine experiences. I would also incorporate the fact that these are destinations with a lot of scenery. So you can incorporate biking and hiking. So Planning an experience to wine country can be for the wine and food, food enthusiastic um, family or, or couples. It can also be for people that are looking um, for an environment that really provides so much else as well. Angie Rice, co-founder of Boutique Travel Advisors based in Scottsdale. Thank you for joining us. The website, TravelBTA.com. Coming up next, a different approach to primary health care. Your best stock option. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. Frustration with the health care system is pushing some to find alternatives. Let's discuss one of them, Concierge Medicine with Bruce Japson, Chicago-based health care writer for Forbes. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. A while back, remember someone saying the reason why some health insurance plans contain a deductible is to keep people from calling the doctor at all hours of the day or night and asking for medical procedures and tests that may be unnecessary. But this seems to be the selling point of concierge medicine. Yeah, it's interesting. Concierge medicine, I think people generally, and I think generally it still is for wealthier people because it's not covered by insurance uh, generally. So you, you uh, doctors that go to concierge would say to their patients, listen, you know, some, some doctors might uh, have partial practice or some of their practice concierge, which means you can call them day or night, da, 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 da. And it's usually, you know, a monthly or an annual fee that could be anywhere between, uh, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars to several thousand dollars, depending on what you get. But generally, people need to understand it's not covered by insurance. Now, having said that, um, Amazon, when they bought this company, One Medical, uh, One Medical has an annual membership fee, um, which is, a, uh, I don't have it in front of me. I'll maybe get it before we're wrapped up here. And then you get access to, you know, by a telehealth, you know, to, to, to physicians and providers. So you have more round-the-clock access that way. So that's probably where, you know, the prices are coming down. We can, there's not many good things that came out of the pandemic, but one of them was is that, you know, telehealth and virtual care kind of took off. And so there are newer services. And I think increasingly some of them may be covered by insurance, but only but because it's it's via telehealth. So when you you know concierge is 
just essentially means, you know, you get it when you want it. And so through the digital apps and the digital evolution that's finally hitting healthcare, I think people are have more it's becoming more affordable. How about that? And then what are some of the disadvantages very quickly? You mentioned uh, some of the concierge plans are not covered by insurance. Is that the big yeah. one? Well, that would be that would be the big one. I think another thing is to the way the system is set up. Uh, if you have a doctor who's gone concierge, that particular physician may not have contracts. If they don't have contracts with your health insurance company, then the referral patterns and so forth might be screwed up. So that physician might not be able to referral, refer you to the more specialized provider that you want to go to or that you need to go to. And so it's just that that would be other things to watch for. So I think generally concierge medicine is for your primary care needs. Bruce Japson, no. Bruce Japson, Chicago-based healthcare writer for Forbes. Thank you for joining us today. Still ahead on this Travel Tuesday, navigating a multi-generational road trip. This is Chicago's news, traffic, and weather station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. A report from the Illinois Attorney General finds the Catholic Church vastly underreported cases of child sex abuse by priests. The head of the Catholic Church in Chicago responds to the AG's report. In Travel Tuesday, more people are taking vacations with parents, grandparents, and kids. We'll focus on multiple generation road trips, and more restaurants are dropping the pandemic inspired QR code menu. WBBM Business, the markets are lower. The Dow is now down 120 points. The NASDAQ is down 111. And the S&P 500 is down 34. We have 83 degrees right now in Chicago under mostly sunny skies. Topping out at 85 today, sunny, cooler by the lakefront. Temperature is in the 70s. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, hundreds more members of the Roman Catholic clergy in Illinois sexually abuse children that acknowledged by the church. That's according to a report from Attorney General Kwame Raoul. Analysis reveals that each Illinois diocese underreported the number of child sex abusers in the Catholic clergy when they initially released those numbers to the public. State investigators have revealed the names and details of more than 451 priests and religious brothers who abused nearly 2,000 children across all dioceses in Illinois. Catholic leaders in the state have only publicly listed 103 substantiated child sex abusers. Cardinal Blaise Supich, Archbishop of the Archdiocese of Chicago, is reacting to the AG's report. The vast majority of cases occurred decades ago, and many of the perpetrators are deceased. No cleric with even one substantiated allegation of sexual abuse of a minor against him is currently serving in the Archdiocese of Chicago. 
He adds that in his view, the list fails to explain the basis by which the allegations were substantiated or deemed credible and by whom. It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Both sides say President Biden and House Speaker McCarthy and their lead negotiators had a productive meeting at the White House yesterday on the debt ceiling, but there's still no agreement as Washington races to strike a budget compromise and raise the nation's borrowing limit in time to avert a potentially devastating federal default as soon as next week. Despite the lack of movement towards a possible agreement, both men appeared upbeat as they faced that deadline. I want to welcome in Chuck Carlson, our uh, stock market analyst for the week based in Hammond, Indiana. Chuck, thank you for joining us today. CEO of Horizon Investment Services, publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast newsletter based in Hammond. Uh, all month long, we've been talking about this looming deadline on the debt ceiling, and kind of the, the markets have been taking a wait-and-see attitude about how these negotiations uh, shake out. They obviously, there's some precedent going back to 2011 and the brinksmanship that took place then. Has that attitude changed? I'm not sure it's changed. I know the market today is 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 not necessarily doing well. But when you look at what the market, I mean, the market knew this was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. And it had held up pretty well. And in fact, you had the S&P 500 go to its highest level of the year, you know, in the midst of kind of this uncertainty. So, uh, you know, as as we inch ever closer to, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever that deadline is, whether it's June 1st, it's June 15, and there's no deal there, you might see a bit more reaction in the market. And, and not unlike what we saw in 2011, when the market took a pretty significant but fortunately short-lived dive you may get some of that in here but i think uh, you know bottom line is if you're an investor i don't think it's something that you should be adjusting your long-term investment strategy for is try to figure out you know, if and when the debt ceiling negotiations are going to come to a conclusion. And on top of that, if you're uh, if 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 you make your your market positions and you analyze business to the prism of all I know is what I read in the paper, the rhetoric is somewhat positive. It sounds like when uh, the Biden administration and House and Senate negotiators get together, it sounds like uh, there is some movement on negotiations, and that one day you'll just wake up and and hear and read they've they've made a deal. Well, perhaps, uh, you know, again, people need to keep in mind, and, and I'm sure they are, that this is a negotiation. And negotiations, whether it's, you know, union negotiations or negotiations for new contracts with them, I mean, they all go down right to the wire, right? I mean, and there's a lot of dancing, and yes, we're close. No, we're not close. People walk away from the table. But at the end of the day, the you know, that deadline that looms is really what forces things. So I, would, I wouldn't read too much into either way, either positive or negative, you know, quote, developments coming out of these talks. I mean, it's it's like all negotiations going to go down to the wire. And um, my guess is something will get settled. Either they'll settle it or they'll kick it down the road, you know, another three months and deal with it during the budget discussions. And then very quickly, I want to touch on Lowe's. Uh, it seems to be hit, like all the home improvement stores, hit by two prevailing trends. One, the end of uh, do-it-yourself projects as people move on with their lives out of COVID. And the other one being the, uh, the, the, the collapse of the lumber bubble. Yeah, I think both those things. You saw it in, in Home Depot's numbers for sure and, you know, in Lowe's as, as well. And it, it's just another area of the economy and an area that you would expect to be hit with sensitivity to interest rates and also to, you know, large consumer spending programs. So it's it's not surprising. And you're starting to see a little bit of, uh, you know, follow through in some other areas of retail, you know, BJ Wholesale's numbers 
were a little bit disappointing. Costco's are coming up. It'll be interesting to see how those hold up. But yeah, you know, I, I don't want to say it's a depression in terms of consumer spending, but you're starting to see a little softness there. Chuck Carlson, CEO of Horizon Investment Services and publisher of the Dow Theory Forecast Newsletter in Hammond. Thank you for joining us today. Lunch money for all generations. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Travel Tuesday, and to some people, a road trip with parents, grandparents, and children sounds like a frightening proposition. However, there are some strategies to make it work and create lasting memories. Let's get some help from Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of SheBuysTravel.com, based in Chicago. Cindy, thank you for joining us today. And when you hear about multi-generational travel, uh, parents, kids, and grandparents uh, packed inside a vehicle for a long road trip, all I could think of is uh, Imogene Coca in National Lampoon's Vacation. Is there a way in which you can have a family road trip without the uh, grandparent being strapped to the roof of the car like it was in that movie? Oh, my gosh. Yes, absolutely. I think there are lots of ways to do multi-gen travel, and that really isn't the right way to do it. If you want to take a road trip, you can take more than one car. There's a, That's always an option. Um, or you can figure out a different place to go that's not even a road trip. Um, you know, I've done many of those it, since my kids were small and we had the grandparents and the great aunt, and sometimes we had the aunt and uncle and some other people who came as well. So, We've done things like we all got on airplanes and we flew to an all-inclusive where we each had our own rooms and we got together on the beach all day and we had dinner together. We had plenty of time together, but a little time apart as well. Um, we've also done ones where uh, we all went um, to Dallas for um, niece's wedding and stayed on for a few days and we toured around Dallas and I put a trip together where we all went to a bunch of different sites. And that was kind of exhausting for me. They had a great time, but I was pretty tired at the end of it. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be a road trip across the country, uh, as was the case with uh, Clark Griswold and his family in that movie. But uh, if you want to do that, let's say a multi-generational family trip to go check out national parks, uh, in that situation, do we, are we talking about maybe a car caravan or do you rent an RV? Well, renting an RV is always a lovely way to do it because then you're carrying your house and your kitchen and everything you need right with you. Um, but I think that I think it depends on your family, right? I mean, maybe you have grandparents that don't drive anymore, and then you are all going to go together. I don't. I don't recommend cramming everyone into the family car if it's an uncomfortable drive. It's just going to make everybody crabby. So um, I have a brother-in-law who has. Um, grandkids and he rents a van when they all come to town and a big 15 person van and they all have plenty of space and they all can be together and drive around. So there are many ways to do it. I think what you want to do is have an honest conversation with everybody and honest being the key point there. Do you want to get in a car with the toddler and the baby and drive for five hours or do you, would you rather find your own way? And when we get there, we'll all be together. Is the more common form of multi-generational road trip uh, perhaps uh, the the family rents or has had in their family for a long time uh, a lake house somewhere in Michigan or Wisconsin or someplace within driving distance, and then mom, dad, grandkids, little kids all go up there for a week in July? Well, I think that's really the classic way, especially in Chicago. So many people do have lake houses 
either on Lake Michigan or on one of the small lakes in Wisconsin or Michigan or even Indiana. Um, but the, the key really is to be together. And again, the key is honest communications, because even when you all get together, if grandma and grandpa rented the house, um, they paid for it and everybody else is going to come is, are they also going to be buying all the groceries? Is grandma going to do all the cooking? It's probably not fair unless grandma really loves to do that kind of stuff. So I'm a big believer before any multi-gen vacation, whether you drive or fly or where you go, you have some really honest conversations before you go. Who's paying? Who's going to do the work? Who's going to, you know, who's going to chase the kids around? Um, Does grandma want to do it and be the babysitter the whole time so that the, the parents can have a vacation? In some families, that's a great way to do it. But maybe grandma doesn't want to do that. Maybe grandma wants to go you know, to the amusement park as well. So you got to have real honest conversations about what works for everybody, what everybody can afford, because maybe there's a family that, you know, somebody got laid off and they don't have money to pay for their part of the house this year. So are you going to not let them come or are you going to cover their costs? The real, uh, you know, it's, it's fun once you get there, as long as everybody knows the rules going in. Cindy Richards, editor-in-chief of SheBuysTravel.com, based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Personal Finance Wednesday. And still to come, the QR menu at restaurants appears to be on the way out. Cash, credit, debit, and totally free. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Paper menus at restaurants are often replaced by QR codes during the COVID crisis, but their time may be up. Let's get the latest from R.J. Hadavi, ahead of the analytical research at the foot traffic analysis firm Placer AI in Chicago. RJ, thank you for joining us today. When did it show up in the data that uh, diners were falling out of love with the QR code menu and wanted to go back to the real thing? Yeah, I think we've seen it really over the last six to eight months is really where it kicked in. I think that was a point where people felt safer about getting back into restaurants and wanted to enjoy themselves. And you know, QR codes for menus, uh, I think they have other uses within the restaurant, but for menus uh, really were a function more the the pandemic than anything else. And, you know, as people wanted to get back and sense of normalcy and you know, their dining experience being part of that, I think that's when we started to see the return of paper menus. Was it simply just that desire to go back to the way things were, or was it just simply the f- fact that uh, QR code menus, while they were nice and convenient and right there, if you had a smartphone with a full battery, uh, they could be a source of uh, stress if your your battery was running low and also just toggling back and forth between the different uh, different categories on the menu made it kind of tough. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, they fell out of favor, to your point, that they were kind of a necessity during the pandemic, that, you know, uh, that they do effectively, uh, in a lot of cases, for, for full-service dining, they do uh, kill the mood to some extent. Uh, in a lot of cases, they're just inconvenient. Uh, you know, it's not easy to find things on the menu, and, um, you know, it, it depends on your, your Wi-Fi signal in a lot of cases, too, or your, your overall signal. And so there's a lot of reasons why I think consumers just kind of, you know, have been fed up with them a little bit. And, you know, there's been some companies – uh, Darden, which is one of the uh, largest full-service dining chains, the uh, parent company of Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse, you know, they made the decision, you know, uh, several several months ago to go back to paper menus just because their consumer surveys, effectively, I think 90% of them said that they preferred having a uh, paper copy to, to look off of. Now, what about QR code receipts? Because I think this is an innovation that really can save some time where your server delivers the bill and then you can pay via a QR code as opposed to waiting for the person to pick up your credit card and run it at a cash register. 
Yeah, I think on the payment side, we're seeing a lot of different technologies. And anybody who's been to the, the National Restaurant show, Association show in Chicago this week will see a lot of those technologies in action. And I think that's that's an area where QR cards still do have a future within the restaurants. I think you're exactly right. If that helps save time and getting out, uh, checking out, I think that there's a, a place for that. Um, it really comes down to convenience and experience, and there's got to be a balance between the two on that. And that's an area where I do think that a QR code can augment the overall experience. So I think that while maybe going away from you know menus on the QR code, I do think that there's a lot of other ways that it can be used effectively to improve the uh, overall consumer experience. And then very quickly, uh, the QR code for like 20 years seemed to be the future that never really arrived. Then the uh, pandemic forced it uh, out of necessity. Is it going away? Is it going to become just a relic of this, this certain time in history? No, I, I don't think it will. I, I think we've certainly seen some behaviors out of the uh, the pandemic uh, are, are here to stay. Some of the things like digital ordering and drive through in a lot of cases, um, and even the time of day that we go to certain restaurants, we've seen a later shift for coffee and things like that. But I do think QR codes uh, they may be used differently than what they were during the pandemic, but they're certainly used, again, payment technologies, uh, potential marketing, other ways to enhance the overall experience. So I don't think they're going completely away, but I do think that some of the uses for them during the pandemic are, are certainly shifting. RJ Hadavi from Placer AI, thank you for joining us today. If you missed any part of the Business Hour, the Replay podcast is available at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.